Thank you for joining episode four of Great Stakeholder Expectations featuring Pam Rokogliese and Lisa Bieber of Freshfields and Pat Tucker and Garrett Musikowski of FTI. All right, so today we're gonna segue into a very related topic, which is activism. And in particular, we're also gonna focus on ESG activism. So first, this past proxy season, had only a few proxy contests and interestingly, not a lot of win for activists. But when you talk to advisors, it seems like there's been lots of activities. So what do we think is going on? Are activists running fewer proxy contests? Pat, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, the the short answer is yes. Um, We have seen, I think for years now, a continuing decline on the number of proxy fights that really go all the way to a vote. The, the short answer is no one wants to run a proxy fight. It's expensive, risky, and messy on both sides. Um, that That is a high-risk endeavor with a lot of money uh, behind it. And that calculus is really not going to change, I think, anytime soon, even with um, the recent management wins we saw at the ballot box this year. The other thing I'm, I would say as it relates to some of the wins we saw, I would caution that the, that may be a little bit of a, a canary in the coal mine. Right now, those those major wins, uh, when you analyze them, they were secured behind near-term TSR improvements and recent governance changes. That goes a little bit against the long-term trend line we've seen where the governance uh, and proxy voting crowd would look at a longer-term horizon, three- and five-year TSR versus kind of recency of change. That is a little bit of a post-pandemic reprieve. There's a understanding of the challenges the pandemic created. And if you've turned the ship around in recent uh, year or so, uh, there's a little bit of a forgiveness for management I think we're seeing. Um, As I look at the 23, I I caution boards from overlearning that lesson because one, I think the leniency gained from the pandemic will have faded um, and the investor mindset has fully changed uh, into this bear market now um, to a real focus on what have you done for me me lately um, and, and can I trust you to actually uh, deliver near-term value? Um, Lisa, I don't know, what, what are you guys uh, looking at as it relates to uh, lessons learned from the proxy season that we saw? I think sometimes there is a an over-reliance on historical patterns for activism. Like you said, what happened with prox- with the pandemic? And in the pandemic, people were jockeying to figure out based on the last couple of years what would happen to them. And I think the the lesson here is that there is dynamism and that activists are not creatures of trends or habits necessarily, but they are very reactive to what is going on in the market and in society and where they fit in. And so particularly as a time when you're in a, a bear market, when there is kind of wide scale economic uncertainty. That's a time when historically, and if you go historically to these particular moments in time, where activism has risen and it hasn't relied on what happened in the last year, but it is a time of dislocation. And, you know, when you think about whether, uh, you know, in a lowering tide are all boats sinking at the same rate, the answer is probably not. And the boat that sinks faster might be more vulnerable to activism, but the boat that isn't sinking as fast is also equally subject to activism in terms of being focused on as a consolidator. And so these are the times when things are fairly choppy, but it's not enough to rely on the public activism that you see anymore. It really is what is going on in the market and relying on 
what others know to really get a good pulse of the level of activity, the level of inquiry, and the level of aggression that you're seeing. Yeah, Lisa, that's a great point. And so, you know, when we look at vulnerabilities, companies often think their biggest vulnerability from a time frame perspective is around their nomination window. And and once you pass that nomination window, you kind of have a, a deep sigh of relief if you think you're potential target of activism. Pat, do you still think that's true or do you think that's changing? I, I do think, I think that's changing and I think it's changing rather quickly. It goes to my original point of nobody wants to run a proxy fight. Um, and so when you don't want to run a proxy fight, the focus then is how can I quickly exert influence on the company to affect its share price? Um, with all these letters you receive from activists, the, the one thing that's never in there is, I invested in your stock because I think I can make a 20% return in a six-month horizon. But that is really what is driving their decision-making. The way to do that is to more directly affect strategy. Uh, typically, uh, putting directors on the board was a way to affect strategy, but it's a longer-term effort. Um, you have to win a proxy fight or reach a settlement agreement, and then those directors have to work within the board to affect change in strategy. You can exert influence sooner if you know when strategy is either being changed or revisited in a company's overall announcement timeline. Uh, what we have seen is activists investing around investor day planning windows, if you will. An investor day is either a revisiting of strategy and enough of a three-year time, or is it a resetting of strategy? That's just kind of a known event in the market. Either way, it's a time to, to articulate a change in strategy. And so we've seen major activists increasingly showing up in the investor day planning window. So that could be several weeks before an announced investor day to ask to go under NDA and, and change financial targets directly. It could even be in a settlement agreement calling for the company to host an investor day directly. And so this attention on uh, investor days is one I think boards should be very aware of. And it includes kind of a, a baseline implication of think about where you plan your investor day and try and move that away from your nomination window. Your nomination window has not gone away from a you know, moment of vulnerability, but it does mean that you need to kind of combine them and, and think about how you can space them apart um, so that an investor day does not lead right into your nomination window. And I, I also want to touch on something you said, Pat, about settlement agreements and agreeing to an investor day. I think one thing that companies really should be focusing on is what the asks are. Because for a long time, you know, when we did settlement agreements, we were concerned with who's going on the board and how long are they on the board. And everything else seemed like an easy give. Are you going to return some cash to cap to shareholders? Are you going to hire a consulting firm? Are you going to put a special committee together? All of these other things were considered almost ancillary and easy gives. But in an era where the focus is really not on board seats, and we can cover why that is in a couple of minutes, but where the focus is not on board seats, you can see how taken together special committees, investor day, consultants, certain directors on certain committees, all those things take on a, a much more heightened kind of vigilance because it is really going towards the strategy. It's not just about getting a person in a seat. It's about shaping how the company moves forward. And there can be, in some ways, much more significant efforts in those areas than there are in just getting a director in a seat. And I just want to touch on that for one second because I think you're seeing that as a trend because it used to be that the activists wanted to put someone from their fund on in the seats. But in an, 
an era where that's fallen out of favor. And so activists are looking for true independence. They don't have someone who has necessarily a sense of loyalty to them. They're just putting on an independent director. They're not paying them because that would have to be generally required under advance notice windows. They're not having voting agreements. Um, So they're just finding qualified directors who they think can otherwise write a ship, but they may have no ongoing relationship with that director thereafter. And so there's really a focus on what are the other areas of influence that activists can have through the boardroom and with corporate strategy. Yeah, the the showing up around investor days is an interesting trend. I'm curious, Laza, what your what your thoughts are with Universal Proxy rolling out. What other trends are you expecting or, or looking for after Universal Proxy is in effect? I think in some ways Universal Proxy is what everything that proxy access had hoped to be. In that, uh, you know, we put proxy. You know, almost every S and P five hundred company has a proxy access bylaw. Uh, we put it into place, I don't know, seven to 10 years ago, and maybe it's been used once at a family-owned company in Texas. Um, so we just haven't seen that come to fruition. But in universal proxy, the ability to have one proxy card to have some of the most significant costs lowered, I think is not really going to affect some of the large brand name activists and activism trends that we've been discussing. I think those folks have their template. They are well-financed. And they will continue on whether or not universal proxy exists. But I think it's an opening to other types of activists exploring activism. And whether you see it in year one, I'm not sure. We talked about in another um, podcast how sometimes these governance trends take a little bit of time to take off. And so I think there's a lot of folks who are looking at year one to see whether or not it's really the benchmark for whether universal proxy is a success. And I think we're going to be having a very different conversation three to five years from now as we watch, you know, it'll take one success for things to really open up or one good fight for there to be some change. And Pat, you said that, you know, activists don't really want to have a proxy contest. And that is true in the traditional sense. But there are a lot of actors out there. And we've heard a lot of whispers of people who've never done this before. And they're kind of willing to try it out and see how it works out for them. And they're not traditional financial activists. And, you know, it'll be really interesting to see how they kind of deal with the idea of universal proxy going forward. Yeah, and I think the universal proxy really raises um, kind of two important issues. One is an issue that I think directors need to pay attention to and really start thinking about, and that's the individual focus on their relevancy to the board. For a long time, we have been articulating uh, the board's qualifications writ large. You know, we have seven directors that have finance experience. We have six that ran a company. Increasingly, just on a, on a regular basis, investors are taking a closer eye to why each individual director is on the board and what value they add. And I do think directors need to be thinking about that. The universal proxy is only going to continue to heighten that focus um, as one slate will force a uh, articulation of one director over another. We saw that even in the Carl Icahn social justice warrior campaign against McDonald's, uh, he was very clear in his deck on targeting specific directors for their lack of qualifications. The other is a longer term trend, but could be interesting as Lisa was alluding to, is what I'm calling green candidates. So does a smaller fund and a and more environmentally minded fund that wants to put a a candidate on the board, put one forward under universal proxy laws 
um, and move forward that way. And and that is not one I would totally discount either, especially as it relates to topics like labor or lack of environmental disclosure. There may be strong support for that based on the current construct of the board. So it's a great segue um, as I as I talked a little bit about um, the ESG activism uh, that we saw last year, uh, led by none other than than Carl Icahn. But really, Garrett, what happened with ESG activism last year? It, it was all talked about, um, but I, I think it's important for us to take a step back and, and think about what we really saw. Yeah, well, Pat, similar to defining ESG, I think <laughs> defining ESG activism, you can go probably have different definitions depending upon who you ask. And so we could touch on that in a second. But I think the, the underlying learning here, right, is that whether a campaign has an ESG issue in it or not, whether a campaign is largely driven by an ESG issue, it all really comes down to economic performance, right? McDonald's and Kroger had defensible economic performance, and that kind of made Icon's campaign an uphill battle from the start. I think beyond this, and you know, Icon and others can argue that both companies should have improved the, the sourcing of their pork products and not used gestation crates. Kroger and McDonald's both had pretty proactive disclosure on these topics. You know, it wasn't that it was a material ESG topic that they've never looked at before that they haven't assessed. They both had programs in place, forward-looking targets, and things of that nature where you can argue that the board and management could have potentially managed that ESG topic slightly better. Yeah, I mean, I think the disclosure issue is an interesting one because it certainly made the job of the board easier or the job of the companies easier in that respect, right? It's it's fairly easy to go and point to something and say, see this here, we've already dealt with the issue and we're working on it. And you pushing us right now is not going to cha- move the needle all that much because it's a process and and we've already started that process. But I even question, and we'll never know because it's an alternate universe, but I even question whether whether that almost wasn't as much of a factor in these campaigns, right? The treatment of pigs or the, the pig supply chain for McDonald's and Kroger are not necessarily the most material part of its business. And I draw a distinction between engine number one, which really went after an oil company's like key strategy and the ability to exist in 30 years from the treatment of pigs at McDonald's, where it, you know pork products are probably the tertiary meat product that one thinks of when they think of McDonald's. You know, most people, I mean, except for perhaps the McRib, most people are not going to McDonald's for pork products. It's just not what they're thinking of. And so when they think about tying, you know, activism to corporate strategy, is that really what investors want McDonald's to focus on? And my guess is that the answer to that question is no. You know, if they had hit a different issue, if they had hit an issue that would be significant, if they had hit inflationary prices for some other animal products or or something that really was going to McDonald's bottom line that would affect them if they were asleep at the switch in 10 to 15 years, maybe you'd have a different outcome. But that goes right back to your first point, Garrett, which is this is about economic performance. This is about strategy. And this is about continuing activism in the same way that we have seen activism since activism began, which is focused on shareholder returns, focused on strategy, focused on the top issues for a company. So I think the takeaway for me from the ESG campaigns at McDonald's, and we still haven't really seen true ESG activism, and we've seen financial activism, and we've seen some, or we haven't seen a successful case of true ESG activism. And so I guess that 
naturally leads us to this question of what is ESG activism and how do we define it? And Pat, maybe you want to weigh in on that. Yeah, that it's it's a great question, and I think there is um, a, a recognition among the the activism defense community that it is a very difficult to define term, and under the sense that a campaign that could be run purely on ESG disclosure materiality issues is one that in theory could be run, but is one we really just haven't seen yet. And I think most people would view engine number one, largely viewed as the kind of ESG activism or the advent of ESG activism as a really traditional economic activist campaign using perhaps ESG as a bit of a wedge issue, um, but was really fundamentally focused on value. And so if we take a step back and think about companies that need to be thinking about this ESG activism or activism um, strongly relying on ESG narratives, you really need to think about companies that, much like um, the the energy sector, are facing meaningful disruption from what you might call the green economy or the the shifting nature of the economy. So look at uh, General Motors and its its need to uh, advance in electric cars. Look at you know companies involved in the circular economy. Um, those are areas where I think you're going to find. ESG-oriented, ESG-first activists um, able to find uh, you know strong resonance across the rest of the investor base because it is imperative for the company to address an adopted strategy to where the economy is going to remain competitive over the long term. Is that companies are, companies are more vulnerable to an ESG-angled attack if they're not addressing their most material ESG risk and opportunities? whether it's a lack of disclosure, a lack of oversight, something as simple as which teams oversee it and who in the board oversees it is really important to stewardship teams. And then having forward-looking metrics and targets to show your strategy on those issues for the most material ESG issues. I think that's kind of the most important thing. And when you have those most material issues laid out in a forward strategy, forward-looking strategy for those ESG topics, then you are limited in terms of the risk that an activist can come in and try to change the narrative. And if they do, it's going to be hard to, to win over investor support. 